the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 629, for Sunday, October 30th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We share your questions. We share your tips. We share your cool stuff found, which is what we did last week. All in the interest of ensuring that each and every one of us that attends or listens later learns at least four new things. Sponsors for this episode include Gazelle at gazelle.com, where you can sell off your old devices for cash. And you can buy refurbished devices, reconditioned, I should say. From Gazelle for less cash than you'd spend likely elsewhere. We'll talk more about that shortly. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. All right, John, we're going to dive right in. We're going to go to Chuck, because why not? Let's just get this thing rolling. And Chuck asks, he says, uh, catching up on some recent Mac Geek Gabs, I've been listening for a definitive go before upgrading to Sierra from Yosemite. So a double skip there. Uh, I've been holding off waiting for a few iterations and updates, which we've seen. And your podcast topics haven't seemed to be dwelling on Sierra upgrade problems or post-installation glitches. Have I been listening carefully enough? Yeah, Chuck, good good question. And I'm glad you asked. Uh, in a general sense, no. Uh, I, we haven't heard of any real major issues moving from, certainly not from El Capitan to Sierra. You didn't mention exactly which Mac you have. Uh, I think... If you've got, I, I, I'm feeling like eight gigs of RAM for both El Capitan and Sierra is is sort of what Apple's target is for that. So if you've got less than eight gigs of RAM, you may find um, some coming from Yosemite. You may find uh, a little bit of sluggishness, especially on boot up or on wake up with your Mac uh, with El Capitan or Sierra, but I don't, I don't find any difference between El Capitan and Sierra on a, on like a four gig Mac. But, um, but other than that, and, and then, uh, you know, make sure most software and hardware works just fine uh, going to Sierra, but there are a few things, especially, you know, uh, like USB audio devices. You, you need to make sure that you've got drivers for those that are specific to your OS so just make sure that that those exist before you upgrade or make sure to clone off your your uh, Yosemite install in case you need to roll back to that. But in general, no, it's been very, very smooth for everyone that's uh, that's gone through it. We really haven't heard a lot. So thanks. Thanks for asking, though, because you're right. We haven't been dwelling on it. So I can see where you might have been wondering. So yeah, good stuff. But if you wanted to dwell on it. You'd go to roaringapps.com and they have a section about Sierra compatibility and they'll also email you with updates. Oh, no kidding. Compatibility. Yeah. I just noticed that on their homepage. Here. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Assuming that people aren't messing with them. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's mostly crowdsourced, right? I, I think so. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. But yeah. It tells you compatibility. So uh, yeah, to flip through that and just, uh, just make yeah, sure. Just make sure. Yeah, exactly. That, exactly. Uh, the apps that are important to you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Let me All see. Right. One th- oh, ahead, so they got 6,000. I was looking at it first and I'm like, 
wait, they only have 10 apps in their database? No, they're only showing 10 at a time here. Oh, okay. But they have 6,757 apps um, or so cataloged for compatibility. So that's nice of them. All right. So Mike has what uh, we'll call a follow-up question, even though Mike didn't know he was doing that at the time. He says, I'm waiting a little while to upgrade to Sierra with a fish shake at Avid. Case in point. Uh, in the past, I've always done a nuke and pave before installing a new OS. It was to keep the cruft from building up year after year to start fresh with the newer operating systems. Is this still a concern? Um, I'm sure we both have different feelings on this, but I, I feel like it's gotten better, but it's always going to be an issue at some level. Uh, and I find it's less and less about the operating system, keeping cruft around, although it does and more about what we as users do. Right. I wind up downloading a ton of different stuff, things that you folks suggest, things that I find. I test them out. I run them and th that stuff can get in the way or at least just pile up down the road. Uh, a nuke and pave lets you do away with all that. And, you know, in one fell swoop. So my feeling is I tend to do unless there's some problem, I tend to do normal just over the top installs for a few years and then nuke and pave every maybe three or four years. Uh, it's often when I get a new Mac that I stop and think, you know, maybe it's time to do a nuke and pave or, you know, and just start from scratch. It's not as bad as, uh, as it could be. It's not as bad as it used to be because you can typically download all the stuff that you need now. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I don't think you have to, but, um, but it's not a bad idea every few years. What do you think, John? Uh, yeah, I migrate. I'm yeah. okay with it. Yeah. I just did. Yeah, I just installed Sierra over the old thing on my MacBook Pro, and everything seems fine. And the things that didn't work are the things I expected not to work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do. I do a clone before I upgrade, uh, just because. Oh, of course. Of, yeah. Right. Well, if if you have if you have to roll back, kind of for the the reasons I mentioned before, it's just like there's something you didn't plan for that suddenly requires you to go backwards. Like, All right, go backwards. It's fine. No harm, no foul. So. Yeah, I mean, what you may want to do um, every now and then, just as good practice, as, as you said, things build up. Is every now and then I'll go through my um, either my downloads folder. That that's where most of the garbage. You know, I don't really pay attention to it, but one should. I mean, you could at the very least sort by date, or at least sort by name and get rid of you know duplicates, or use something like uh, Clean My Clean Mac, My Mac. I believe does that. Yep. Yep, absolutely. You could either do it through the Finder yourself; it's not too hard, or Clean My Mac makes it a a little nicer. Yeah, they've got a nice little database that sort of yeah pays attention to that. And stuff. actually, even Sierra now, of course, uh, has some features built in that kind of clean things up or put them elsewhere if they're right. too much space. Right, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it necessarily uh, proactively wax things. Though it'll empty. Yeah, I think it it, it can empty the trash automatically for you now. But. Um. Kevin and Kevin Collins in our chat room at uh, com slash stream, where you're welcome to join along anytime we are recording a show. Kevin Collins in the chat room says he suggests Hazel for weekly download archiving. And Hazel is great for this. It can do a lot of different things. I mean, it, it you can have it watch folders and do all sorts of different things. And I've used it for years. We use it to process our incoming uh, files for Mac Geek Gab and ways. And it just, I mean, you can say, look, when something appears in this folder, go and do all this stuff, but you can also have it do things like uh, archive off your downloads folder. I have it 
remove incomplete downloads after a week. I have it remove duplicate files because you might, it might not come as a great surprise that I wind up downloading the same thing again uh, for various reasons. And then I have two of them and Hazel will pitch the, uh, the duplicate one. It's really, really cool. So, um, so yeah, thank you, Kevin, for suggesting that Hazel is, is killer. So yeah, good stuff. Use Hazel, John. Nah, I never, never got into it. Hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things that once you have it, it's, uh, it's pretty handy to have around. So, all right. And then one last one about migrating John Aaron writes, he says, I recently had to update my laptop, uh, due to my 08 black macro MacBook breathing its last few breaths. It was running 10.7.5 when it did. I decided to start clean and not do a migration too many years of stuff. Everything's been going well, except for the migration of my email. Here is my process. I connect the hard drive from my old Mac to my new Mac via a dock. I open mail on the new Mac and I tried to use mail to import the mailboxes on the other drive. However, however, it is unable to see the users slash library folder that the mail folder is in. So with a little finagling, I take the mail slash V2 folder from my old hard drive and move it to my new laptop. And then I choose to import. I found everything is fine, except that it took two days and never finished. It completely hung on a deleted mail folder. I stopped the import. And after I had restarted mail, all my accounts were switched to read only. And it appeared that my old data was there. I did some research and found that this read only issue was a permissions thing. So I downloaded Onyx and ran some maintenance. Voila, all my imported folders were gone and the read-only issue was resolved. I tried three permutations of this though, including clearing the deleted mail folders, all with similar results. So I am left still needing slash wanting to get all of my mail from my old drive, too much organization and information that I need. However, there must be a better way to get it into the newer version of mail without this hassle. Yeah, um, a couple of things. Number one, Importing mail can be interesting at best. I've found it safer to just migrate all of my mail over. So even when I'm doing, or especially when I'm doing a manual migration, I, before I launch mail for the first time on a new machine, I copy my users home, my home library mail folder over to the new computer. And then when mail it be it a new version or the same version, but if it's a new version, when it sees it, it will offer to re-index and, and kind of rebuild my mail library. But, um, but that I've found to be the best way. Now in, in your case, it's probably too late for that because you've probably been using mail on the new computer while trying to pull over all this old data. One thing I suggest is when you mount the old drive, go into the finder, do a get info on the old drive. And from there, um, way at the bottom of the get info window is a checkbox that says, ignore ownership on this volume. Check that. That should deal with all of the permissions issues that might or might not exist and might be the magic answer to your problem. Uh, it, it should at least get you further down the path and is certainly the, the next thing I would try. You have any other thoughts, John? Um, my thought is why any of this would even be necessary if you're using IMAP. Well, if he's got an archive on his Mac, then it's absolutely necessary. 
not all of it. I mean, I, I certainly don't have enough storage on my IMAP server to store all the mail that I have archived. So, so I archive it off. I think it's his on my Mac storage that, that we're talking about here, but you're right. If he would hope so. Yeah. I'm I'm scratching my head. Yeah. No, you're totally right. The last time I set up a computer from scratch, I'm like, okay, uh, go to, you know, whatever system preferences where you'd find your internet things and, you know, may have to do some, Okay, actually, now I think I, I can understand part of the question. Yeah, but no, you're right. If everything that I had to manually fiddle with, I mean, the, the mailbox has certainly come over, but some of the uh, some of the lower level settings, um, yeah, or like if you have custom email addresses bound to ones that that may not make it over. So, right. Okay. Right. Right. Just thinking through here, but yeah, actually, I have. Um, I mean, all of my content is stored in IMAP. I don't have any that's just on my Mac. No kidding. I have, well, who is it? You know, Yahoo has a terabyte. So, you know, I have archive folders for all of the, I mean, you should have an archive. Fo- yeah. I don't know if it's technically part of the IMAP standard, but I have archive folders on all of my uh, various mail accounts. And when mail gets, you know, typically over a year, I take the mail from the primary mailbox and drag it over to the archive. Right, but but that you, you're still keeping all of that on the IMAP server as Correct. opposed to just a local archive. Isn't that interesting? I had so I use Gmail, and uh, and its various incarnations of Google Apps for domains and things like that. I never thought about using Yahoo as a secondary, you know, mail account that I never send or receive from necessarily but use as an online archive. I mean, you have to choose to trust Yahoo with your, with your email and, and we won't get into that. Um, but, you know, they, I mean, everybody's got security concerns. Yahoo, I think just had a pretty bad one earlier this year, but, um, but yeah, that's interesting. I forgot that that whole unlimited storage thing. That's not a bad idea. If you trust Yahoo, you know, with whatever you've got in your email, that's yeah. not a bad idea. Huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it. you know, in, in the chat room, Furby says that relying only on a host for backing up and preserving IMAP data is a bit risky. And I totally agree with that. But it's, yeah, you know, that's an, why an, I do full backup. Another layer of protection of it. Right, right, right. Huh. Now, the other strategy, I'm curious here. Um, I'm running this on my other machine or not my podcast machine. But um, I mean, I wonder if Migration Assistant has these smarts to only bring over mail data. Oh, yeah. It, that might be true. I know it won't. Yeah, when, when you do Migration Assistant, at some point you get a level of granularity as far as what you'd like to bring over. And I believe you can just say mail. Yeah. And it's associated stuff. That would be another way to now, some, avoid these permission. Somebody in the chat room says migration assistant won't let you drill down that far. So yeah, uh, I thought it did it once. It time. might. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. Anymore. yeah. 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 Um, uh, let's see. What are we going to here? Oh yeah. All right. So John listener, John, not you, although you might've had the same question. Right. He says, just curious if you guys have heard if the new touch bar that Apple announced this week for the MacBook Pros will be integrated into any external Apple keyboards so the functionality can be used with other devices. Um, and I figure this is a good way to kind of slip ourselves into the discussion about 
Uh, oh, was there an event about the Apple event? Right. Well, and and I had the same thought, uh, John, about the, the, the you know Apple. Apple tends to do these types of things, right? When they announced the iPhone six at that same event, they announced the Retina iPad Mini two, I believe. Uh, the iPhone six had a Touch ID sensor. The brand new iPad Mini did not. And I asked them about it, like, you know, why not? And they said, well, um, I mean, it was a very canned response that they had uh, in kind of the demo room after the after the event. But it was it was, look, you know, well, we feel that this is a good place for this to be used. And uh, and we're going to focus on it here for now. And and my guess is if you ask them the same question about the touch bar, they would say the same thing. But eventually, of course, the touch ID sensor sort of expanded throughout the product line. I would guess that the same thing is planned for the touch bar, but they're going to see how it goes and see how not only users react to it, but how developers react. Does it need to be tweaked? Does it, you know, is there anything that, that should change before it, it becomes, you know, part of, of every aspect of the keyboard centric product line. Um, but there is an interesting thought, assuming that it's going to go there. Um, I was having a conversation with red sweater software software's Daniel Jalkett on Twitter and he pointed out very, very quickly that if they put the touch ID sensor, which is a part of the touch bar, if they put the touch ID sensor into an external keyboard, the secure enclave would likely also have to be inside that keyboard too. Um, others pointed out maybe not because, uh, but it would have to be inside the Mac. So do you want to, to limit that? And, you know, then there's a secure connection between the keyboard and the Mac, much like there is between the watch and the iPhone, uh, it starts getting interesting. My guess is they would put the secure enclave inside the keyboard and your fingerprints would be paired to that keyboard, not to that Mac, which is fine. I mean, it you know, it's kind of a different way to think about it, but fine nonetheless. So, yeah, I think they'll be coming. I think we'll see them probably in the spring would be my guess. Uh, but it's just a, you know, semi-educated guess. I have no information on on that. It's all about the mysterious T1 chip. Uh, is that what's in there? Well, they, they at one point, they, they pointed out that there's this chip called the T1 chip that handles Touch ID and Secure oh. Enclave. Oh, okay. Okay, right, right, right. So, I thought it was right. kind of funny. T1? It's like, dude, that's like so 90s. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, back in the 90s, if you uh, wanted to, to have like the fastest internet connection, you get a T1. Now, that was 1.5 megabits per second synchronous yes. so yeah i remember that man that was great i actually worked in a lab where we had our own t1 we were like rock stars yeah now even probably the slowest cable modem even the slowest dsl <laughs> connection is likely faster than a t1 in both uh directions so yeah good stuff yeah. um but but yeah let's talk about this this event that apple had i mean we don't need to recap everything but is there any thoughts that you want to share, John, with the with the show here? I mean, most of it was rehashing stuff that we knew already. Uh, I mean, they talked about TV. It's like uh, okay, that it's a you know, it's a better way to um, uh, manage what you want. Uh, yeah, so the Apple hardware and select services, and I think that's the uh, kind of fish shake that some people have is that it's it's not all encompassing, but that that's kind of the nature of the the landscape to begin with. So. Right, I, I'm really excited about the TV app. By the way, you know, for for months, I've been saying that the Apple TV is too app focused; it's too app centric. 
it makes sense for the iPhone to be app centric because there are many, many different types of things that you can do with it and would do with it uh, in a, on a daily basis with the TV. While there are many different types of things that you might do on a daily basis, you're likely turning that on to consume content. So why do you ask me what app I want to launch every time I turn on the TV? Why is that the home screen? And while Apple didn't talk about solving that problem, they did talk about and create the user interface that would uh, solve that problem. And it's called the TV app. You still have to launch the app, but once you're in, it shows you a list of your favorite shows and it doesn't matter what app you need to, to run those shows as long as you have the app. But once you've started watching them, they all sort of appear there and then you get some recommendations and all of that. And we'll, and I, you know, recommendations is I'm glad Apple's doing it. Um, do I expect great things out of it? No, but that's not a fault. Uh, that's, that's not a dig at Apple. That's just a dig at the industry in general. No one has done discovery well yet. I don't think, but I'm sure glad that Apple's going to try and we'll see how that goes. But having a favorites list is great. Not having Netflix in there is a little weird but it's just as weird as not having Amazon prime on the Apple TV at all. You know, I already, I already live this world, right? Because I have TiVo. I have a show centric view that is multi-platform and TiVo includes Netflix and Amazon prime right in their views. So if I want to go watch Mr. Robot, I just choose Mr. Robot from my list of shows on the TiVo, which is sort of my main page there. And it plays it for me. And in fact, last night, I thought we were watching Mr. Robot on Netflix. We are not. We are watching Mr. Robot on Amazon Prime. Uh, and that's fine. But it, that was sort of the beauty of it is I did not know. I just keep watching the episodes from. Oh, you started watching. That's good. Yeah. Are, you, are you in the first season? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're at episode 1.6 or 1.7 or something. But um, but yeah, it it's so it it's it, that that paradigm works. Um it's a little weird to me that Netflix is willing to participate in TiVo's implementation of this, but not Apple's, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, but I'm really excited about the TV app. I mean, it, it solves a huge problem with the Apple TV and paves the way I'm hoping it becomes the default home screen for the Apple TV at some point, but, uh, but that's not my call. So, so yeah, that, I was excited about that. Uh, and then new MacBook pros or is that new MacBooks pro? How do we say that properly, John? I don't MacBook know. MacBook Pros? I would say MacBook Pros. All right. Is the plural of MacBook Pro. It's not MacBooks Pro? No, that, that doesn't, just doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, but neither does Attorneys General and yet. And yet. Attorney Generals. No, sir. Mm -mm. Yeah, well. Nope. Well, I'm going to say what sounds right, not what's correct. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, now that we've gotten that not sorted out, what, uh, what thoughts on the new MacBooks Pro, John? Um, they, uh, I mean, they bumped the specs a little bit, you know, the, the, you know, the touch touch bar is of course a big innovation there, which, uh, okay. That's kind of cool. Um, it looks like they abandoned, uh, MagSafe, which, uh, th though somebody already makes a MagSafe light thing for the connectors on there. And yeah, now Griffin. they got four, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. So, uh. And uh, now they got four uh, Thunderbolt three ports. It's like okay, that's that's kind of nice. All right, um, so let's let's back up a little bit because what you said is is incorrect. Um, what? They do not have four Thunderbolt three ports. They have four USB C ports. And on this particular machine, because of the chipset and mm -hmm. and chip that's in it, 
those USB-C ports are capable of transmitting USB-1, USB-2, USB-3, Thunderbolt 1, 2, I believe 1, but certainly 2 and Thunderbolt 3 and power, right? So um, this is an important distinction here because it's an easy mistake to make. And we I blame the USB consortium for this. When we're talking about USB nomenclature, there are some letters associated with USB and there are some numbers. Here's the easy way to remember it. Letters describe shapes of connectors and nothing more. Numbers describe transport protocols. So USB A is the flat connector that we're used to on almost everything that's existed, you know, for a while. USB B is that square weird port, the thing that looks sort of like a house that's probably on your printer and perhaps nothing else. And then USB C is the new connector that, that we're all seeing. USB one, two, and three just describe speeds um, and maybe a couple of other things, but, but uh, our connector, our connector agnostic uh, Thunderbolt does not have connectors. Thunderbolt one and two operate over mini display port shaped connectors and Thunderbolt three operates over a USB C shaped connector. Uh-huh. Does that help? It's yeah. it's confusing. Uh, you They're know, Thunderbolt three USB C ports. How's that? They are USB C. Yeah, yeah, but but that makes it sound like they're the Thunderbolt three is the shape of the port, and it's not. They're USB C ports that no. will that will transmit Thunderbolt three. Yeah, that will speak yeah. Thunderbolt three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What I didn't say was incorrect. Maybe no, no, no. Well, you call them Thunderbolt three ports, which is incorrect. Well, that's what Apple calls them too. So. I know that's the problem. I'm looking right at the spec and they say Thunderbolt three paren USB dash C. Right. Close paren. Right. I know. It, yeah. Yeah. But no, it's, um, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily for me. I'd have to think about it. I mean, so it's nice that you have these, you know, potentially very speedy ports and there's four of them. That's, that's nice. Of course, now we're going to be talking a, a dongle hell. <laughs> You're going to need a dongle to do everything. Well, I can't say I miss some of the things that they don't include. Like, you know, the SD slot I always found was a poor implementation. So, yeah. So what? Right. You get adapters for whatever else you need. Right, right, right. Yeah, I I actually, I really like the whole USB-C concept. Um, I, I was sold on it at CES earlier this year. And and I, and it's it's good. I mean, it like I said, it, it can handle all kinds of things, including power. Uh, so it's a very, very flexible port. I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Yes. There's a transition that we're sort of already in the midst of going through here. And yes, that'll be somewhat painful. And yes, we'll have to live in dongle slash dock world, but I really like, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not using any USB C stuff yet, so I don't have any USB C docks, but I do have, Thunderbolt docks on the two iMacs that I use regularly. I've got uh, a CalDigit dock up here in the studio, a uh, CalDigit Thunderbolt dock, and then a, uh, an OWC Thunderbolt dock down in the um, in the office. And they're both, I mean, it's great being able to have these extra ports. And like this machine doesn't have USB 3, but it does now with this Thunderbolt dock. So I, I'm, I, I like the idea of of this kind of dock expansion world a little different with laptops, but like you said, dongles and adapters kind of get you there. So I use Thunderbolt on my, uh, 
on my MacBook Air to get me USB uh, 3 and gigabit Ethernet. And I think it's great. So I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. And um, the only thing that cracks me up, and I, I saw, um, I don't know who penned the article, but but I saw we penned an article here. But um, I don't think the general public is asking for thinner each time i understand the engineering challenge of making something thinner and make it do more I mean, sure part of it is just you know what you know part of it is design and part of it is you know vendors uh, you know people that make the parts you put in there make things that are smaller but um sure i don't know yeah. it seems to be a fixation <laughs> i don't know if you follow this one account on twitter but it's funny but it's a johnny ive parody warning he uses uh he drops f-bombs all the time but um that account is so funny. It's somebody pretending to be Johnny, and, and the, the, half the time he tweets about making everything thinner because it, it, it's like his obsession. <laughs> so here's something interesting, John, that yes. uh, John in the chat room pointed out to us that the on the MacBook MacBook Pros with the Touch Bar, so the ones with four, uh, you or I guess I guess it's the yeah with four USB uh, or four yeah USB C ports. Apple keeps calling them Thunderbolt three ports, which is sort of weird, but um, on the 15 inch, all four of those ports deliver full Thunderbolt three performance. Uh, no, no problem. But on the 13 inch that has the touch bar, which has four USB C ports, they all support Thunderbolt three uh, or they, the two left hand ports support Thunderbolt three at full performance. The two right-hand ports deliver Thunderbolt 3, but have reduced PCI Express bandwidth. So if you get the 13-inch with four ports, the two left-hand ports are the ones that you want to use for speed-intensive operations. And then the uh, the the 13-inch with only two Thunderbolt... Sorry. The 13-inch with only two USB-C ports delivers full Thunderbolt 3 on uh, on both of them. And there's a there's a knowledge base article about this, but I'm not sure. I mean, I you know, we could we could speculate as to why it's. I'm sure it's just you know engineering and design and all of that. But thank you, for, uh, both both um, John in the chat room and PowerBook dude. So <laughs> hey, I like my PowerBook too. My Pismo was one of my favorite machines. So yeah, I'm fine with the uh, my 2012. Does everything I need. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm so that's, that's my, really my only complaint about the event is I, I actually like what they've done with the new MacBooks pro or MacBook pros. Uh, I, I like the idea of the touch bar. I'm glad they're experimenting with it. Uh, but it leaves the rest of the lineup a little bit confused. Still, there's this, you know, lower end 13 inch MacBook pro that they, set up to compete with the $500 cheaper MacBook air at also at 13 inches. And then there's the MacBook at the low end of the range. There's no 11 inch air anymore, <laughs> but, but they didn't clean up the lineup in a way that makes it easy. Like I need, well, I think Phil did. I mean, he basically said, 
I don't know why he didn't just say it. He said, what I heard him say when he was talking about the low end MacBook Pro was, don't buy the MacBook Air. (laughs) Well, but except. Did you hear the same thing? Yeah. Well, I thought thought this was going to be one of those things where they say, and we still have the 13 inch MacBook Air for people that want that. And then he went down the path of explaining how the 13 inch MacBook Pro is better, faster, smaller than the. Uh, than the air with the same screen size. And I thought it was going to be, and so actually we're going to go ahead and drop the air and we've just got this here for you instead. Well, but, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, but no, they, they left it because there's a $500 price Delta between the two. That's not insignificant. So that's the part that kind of makes me scratch my head is like, all right, as a guy who knows that he needs to buy at least a couple of laptops for the family, um, this year we've been, you know, the kids def- definitely need to be upgraded at some level at some point in the next, you know, probably six months, if not sooner. Um, maybe I needed a, a replacement for my 2011 air. I probably need to spend a lot of money is what it is. I-, I was waiting for this event so that I could decide which path to go down. And part of my path might be refurbs, right. Of older models, which is totally fine. I just kind of wanted to see what was going to happen. And I'm just as confused as I was before going in, like, really, which ones do I get for the kids, you know, that are going to last? I'm hesitant with the MacBook. I'm frankly hesitant with anything that's only got two cores right now, which is everything except the 15 inch air. I'm sorry, the 15 inch pro. Uh, so that's that's really where I'm I'm just kind of frustrated. But, you know, that's that's that. I, I got nothing else. So, yeah. So, I don't know. That's what I got, John. Hey, let's, um, let's talk about our sponsor here because uh, the folks at Gazelle know exactly what they're doing when it comes to taking your old devices. And that can be old Mac laptops in addition to your iPhone and your iPad uh, that you're no longer using. And turning them into cash. They make it super simple. You just visit gazelle.com and start clicking. And you can do it. You will get a price before I finish doing uh, this sponsorship spot for Gazelle. Because they make it so, so quick. You can do this on your iPhone. You can do it on your Mac. uh, You can do it on your iPad, obviously. So you go there and you click and you tell it, I want to sell something and they ask you what you want to sell in terms of a general product category. You drill down a little bit, answering some questions that get more and more specific as you, uh, <clears throat> as you identify what it is you're selling. And then you tell them what condition you think it's in and they give you some guidance on that. And if it's uh, and then they show you a price. <clears throat> and if you like the price, you say, great. And they send you a box or a shipping label, whichever you like, however it works out best for you. And then you uh, ship it in. You don't pay for shipping. You don't pay for anything. The only money that flows flows from them to you once they receive your device. And, uh, and they're great about it. I, I, I just sold off a, an iPhone to them. I don't know, a month ago. And it worked out great. In fact, they got it. They had some questions about it. They emailed me before they, they, they did anything. Uh, they came back around and gave me uh, actually a little bit more money for it than I thought uh, or than it originally said I was going to get. And if you want, instead of getting the money as cash, if you take it as Amazon bucks, they'll add 5% to it. So if you're going to spend some money at Amazon, which this holiday season, I think is for many of us sort of a given, why not take the extra five points, 
spend it there. You're good to go. You got to check it out. Gazelle.com. On the way during your checkout, they'll ask where you heard about Gazelle. Go ahead and make sure that you uh, you choose Mac Geek Gab. We're just in their little drop down list there. It's a pretty short list, and uh, and that way they know that we sent you to them, and uh, and that's good for everybody. So thanks so much to Gazelle for being our sponsor. Visit them at gazelle.com. All right, John, let's um, let's go to Joe. We've got a, we've got some fun tech questions here. I want to see where I want to see where these take us. So Joe says. I recently bought a used Mac Pro 4,1 from 2009. About every other day, the fans will just turn on at full speed, usually about a minute after waking up or turning on, and when not even straining the computer. To remedy this, I reset the SMC by unplugging the power cord and waiting 15 seconds, uh, or I turn the fans down with an app while monitoring the temperature of the CPU with menu meters, but I'm pretty nervous when doing that. I was wondering if there's anything I could do to not have to keep unplugging the computer or doing something manual. So um, this is interesting because resetting the SMC, that's really smart. That, that sort of gets the computer back to baseline. Um, I'm curious though, typically the, typically these fans are going to turn on when a, a temperature, not just the CPU temperature, but a temperature sensor indicates that something is getting too hot. So the question is what's getting too hot? Uh, menu meters or something like iStat menus show you a lot of different temperature sensors in your computer, not just the CPU. It could be the GPU. Um, it could be something else. And so I'm curious what's happening with the, with, with the, the temperature in there. What, you know, if we can figure out what's causing the fans to kick up, maybe we can figure out what's going on. Any thoughts on this, John? Yeah, I was looking, and as far as I can tell, menu meters does not show you the temperature. It might just show CPU usage. I was looking, so it shows okay. CPU, disk, memory, and network traffic. But um, yeah, so iStat menus, hopefully you can run it on a machine that, that, that is that old. Um, but what has to be is, or, or my opinion, is that it's a, a flaky temperature sensor. Oh, where you were going. Well, they're sure they it happens. Out yeah. Like anything. I mean, I think basically what it is, it's a, it's a little resistor and based on the value, um, you know, it tells the computer how warm something is and the way it reacts. If it thinks something is too warm is it spins up the fans. Sure. Yeah. Um, the reason I mentioned that is because we've seen that. I remember for a while, the IMAX had this kind of proprietary uh, temperature sensor. And if you didn't install it, and it wasn't there, then basically I guess the circuit was open and the computer would interpret that as this thing's burning up and it would spin up the fans to full speed. So um, based on that experience, that's why I'm thinking it's a, it's a flaky sensor. So yeah, the, but the way you, you have to tell is running something like iStat menus. And you'll probably see one, I'm guessing, I'm hoping, <laughs> that's way off or is it like right. the maximum value? So, it, you know, this is it, and it's easy to forget this stuff, <clears throat> but PowerBook dude in the chat room suggests bringing it to the genius bar where troubleshooting happens for free and they will run Apple's extended diagnostics on this and that will check all of the temperature sensors um, for free. I, I believe this computer is still supported by the genius bar. It's going to be close. 
but I believe it's still supported by the Genius Bar. That's that's the only question that I would have about it. Um, oh, what did he say? It was a two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Yeah, it's going to be on the on the. Uh, Which it's going to be Mac on the Pro? fence. Yeah, two thousand nine, four comma one Mac Pro. So that's that's the question: is is it is it not considered a legacy machine yet? And I don't. It, yeah, it's going to be close. But but uh, it, it's worth Mac re- Tracker says vintage. So vintage, not legacy. Uh, I think if it's vintage, the diagnostic still runs. Correct. It's not obsolete. The one before yeah. that, so the early two thousand eight, according to Mac Tracker, is obsolete. Uh, vintage, I think, means support's almost gone. But this is this is an important thing to remember that you know Apple Apple's stores, not the the ASPs, the, the you know the kind of the individually owned Apple partners will charge you for diagnostics as they should because they're spending their valuable time uh, helping you. Apple's genius bar chooses not to charge for that valuable diagnostic time, um, which sort of screws the ASPs. But as a, you know, as a consumer, if you can get yourself to a genius bar and get an appointment in a time frame and distance that works for you, you can save a little bit of money by having uh, Apple do those diagnostics for free. They won't do the repair for free. Although oftentimes um, their repairs will be, when I had to get my power supply replaced in this iMac, it was cheaper to have Apple replace it and probably cheaper to have my local ASP replace it than it was to buy the part from iFixit. Um, and then I would, of course, had to put it in myself. And it's just because Apple, uh, other than their ASPs, Apple does not. And when I say ASP, I mean authorized service providers. Um, it, their ASPs can, ASPs can buy hardware like parts direct from Apple. No one else can. So places like iFixit or, or Tech Restore or anything like that, uh, they have to buy parts in bulk from, from liquidators. And sometimes it's Apple liquidating stuff by selling off, you know, a lot of 100,000 uh, bad iPhones. And then they take them apart and pull the, the good pieces out and things like that. So, um, so that's why those parts are expensive on the, on the aftermarket. So, yeah, but uh, I, I, I'm with you, John. Yeah, trying to figure out what temperature sensor it is. And then that might tell you it's it's a bad sensor or, you know, there's some other component that is actually heating up. So another listener, John, we've had like there's so many Johns. These are the Johns I know um, asks. Like you, I'm a bit of a speed and throughput junkie when it comes to my Internet connection, and I wanted to get your opinion about bonded cable modems. I noticed that Doxis 3.1 is starting to make its way to the consumer market. And I'm writing to you to get your opinion on this. I always listen with interest when you bring up the subject of cable modems, routers, and general networking about a month ago. Unfortunately, I don't remember when I listened when you went over channel bonding with some cable modems you were testing. Unfortunately, I don't remember if those were 3.1. I have a Doxis 3.0 cable modem provided to me by my service provider. It's a Cisco unit with a built-in Wi-Fi and four-port router. I disabled the Wi-Fi in favor of my aftermarket Netgear R7000 router. However, unfortunately, this modem does not allow me to disable its router, forcing me into a double NAT scenario. Consequently, I find it so far impossible to externally access my QNAP-hosted Plex server, and I'm always on the lookout for better tech to replace my aging stuff. Which modem would you recommend, and do you have any experience with Doxis 3.1? 
so I, I haven't messed with any 3.1 modems yet. And, and there's some good discussion. We can put some links in the show notes over at dslreports.com. It's a great place to go to find people talking about all this kind of stuff. I, I am there quite often. Um, here's the thing. Doxis 3.1 is it uses a new signaling uh, protocol, a different uh, QAM. And I can't remember what QAM stands for, but, but it essentially increases the density of the, uh, uh, the, the streams, if you will. I think I'm getting that mostly right. Allowing you to send more data over, over, you know, existing channels. Um, most providers are not yet supporting Doxis 3.1. Uh, you would need it for gigabit internet speeds over a cable, you know, a coax connection. Comcast is doing some testing. I believe it's only in Nashville right now. It might, they're, they're expanding. It's happening within the next year. I expect Doxis 3.1 to start to be relatively common in sort of their larger market areas. And then, and then it, it'll expand beyond that. But um, here's the thing. Doxis 3.0 cable modems are still pretty inexpensive and you can get really good ones for less than a hundred bucks. Uh, you know, like I, I really like the, uh, Motorola 7420. Um, I like the surfboard. I, I like the 6900 actually, um, that that's got a, 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 router in it, but you can turn the router off. Um, I also tested the, the Netgear C7000, which is actually a cable modem with your router inside of it. And again, with these that have the, that I, the, the ones that I would recommend with, with routers in them or Wi-Fi access points in them, you can turn those off if, and when the technology that's in your router uh, becomes obsolete when it, when it, when it comes to the, the, the networking stuff, but not the, the cable modem stuff. At this point, I would suggest a, a Doxis 3.0 modem because they're cheap. Doxis 3.1 modems are just starting to get provider certification uh they're still very expensive there's not many of them on the market i would argue to say that if unless you need a doxis 3.1 modem right now uh, and, and if you do your provider is probably going to provide you with one because this is all very new but uh unless you need one right now i'm assuming the soonest you would need one is probably in a year so let's say we're talking about having you buy a doxis 3.0 modem right now and then a year from now, buy again. Uh, and really, a cable modem should last you, you know, four or five years, right? So it would make sense to say, well, I'll buy the 3.1 now. It's all backwards compatible. And then when I need it, it's there. Because of the way the pricing is and because of the way the market is, I think you'd spend less money buying a 3.0 right now and then a 3.1 in a year after their prices come down than you would just buying a 3.1 right now, even if you could buy a 3.1. And I don't think you can. Uh, I think you can only get them through the providers at this moment. So spend the, you know, whatever it is, the, I don't know, I think it's like, you know, 78 bucks or something. Get yourself um, one of any one of these. I, I like the Netgears. I like the surfboards. I like the Motorola's. I would get something that is at least 16 by four right now uh, with kind of the, the, the standard home connection Comcast, which is, you know, one of the larger providers in the U S here, will bond up to 20 channels on the downstream if you have them and typically three on the upstream 16 is enough um the netgear router i mentioned is a 24 by 8 router but still you know my comcast connection bonds 20 down and three up on on the 24 by 8 router 
on the 16 by four, it's obviously 16 down because that's all I've got and three up. But, um, but either one of those is more than enough to get, uh, what's my connection now? 200 megabits per second down and I think 10 up. So that means two, really two twenty, two thirty down and like 12 up. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy Doxus 3.1 right now, but keep an eye out for it. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we're pushing gigabit to the home over, over coax. That's pretty cool. Thoughts, John? QAM is quadrature amplitude modulation. Oh, you rock. Thank you. Well, it's easy enough to look up. Yeah, I think. right. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've seen it too. I actually see it right now on my Doxus screen for all my uh, downstream are all 256 QAM. Okay. My, my upstream, oddly enough, is only Doxus 2, yeah. which I guess makes sense. Yeah. But um, I guess the, the first question I'd ask myself before thinking about this is, does your ISP even support it? Because right. if you get a 3.1 and they don't support it, then it's not going to go any faster. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm living in the... I, I still have our basic package, which is what... 30 down, I think, and five up. Okay. Works okay. for me. Yeah, I, I will say this. If you are a- Not comp- for you, because you're a crazy household. You have like tons of devices. So well, I, yeah, I, but I also I don't just know have- if you'd, here's I don't d- know if you'd survive with 35, 30 down and five up. I, I would have know. to go out of my way to have Comcast slow me down to that. Um, no, they're just, their connections are just like, even the, the baseline connections are just much faster. So we, because I got this email from- from John, it actually, then my wife was asking if we could get some of the lights out of the bedroom for a while, we did move the, the main router up there. And so I did, I moved everything around, but as a byproduct of that, I had to unplug my cable modem because I was moving the cable modem from the bedroom back down to the living room where, where I prefer to have it. And the reason I can do that now is, is the bonded mocha. And I have a great connection between them with those action tech um, uh, devices. So moved the cable modem. And after I moved it, I thought, Hey, wait a minute, I should turn off QOS on my router so that nothing's limiting my connection speed and then run a speed test. And lo and behold, I found that, uh, by power cycling my router, it redownloads the profile that I'm supposed to have from Comcast. And when it did, it bumped up from 150 megabits per second to 200. And I, and, wow. and I mentioned that and lots of people then went and rebooted their Comcast routers and voila, their connection speeds went up. So I had to retweak my QoS settings to, you know, to let me uh, take advantage of that, which I did. And now coming to you over a 200 megabit, actually it's about when I tested it, it's like two, you know, two twenty five to two thirty five is where I get on the downstream and then uh, still the 10 megabit upstream. So that's like really 12 and a half, but, um, but it works great. Uh, so yeah. Remember, <laughs> remember to reboot your cable modems is, is, is the point, especially if you're a Comcast customer, because sometime in the last month, they began upgrading people uh, nationwide. It's not just here in New England that I'm okay, hearing about. Okay, hold on. Let me try that. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Our service, our basic service, which it's about 50 bucks a month. Uh, okay. And I think I get a discount because I also get. But yeah, Optimum a while ago. Um, they wanted like a pat on the back because they increased their lowest tier from 25 megabits down to 30 megabits down. And sure. It's like, wow. Thanks for throwing me that extra crumb. That, yeah. It's really going to make a big difference. So when I, I'm looking at people like you where I, I imagine you have above basic 
tier, but still. I Only mean, one level above basic. Oh. And, and this is all we've ever had. So we've never changed our cable speed, our internet speed package. And we've been in this house 11 and a half years. When we got here, I the package that I paid for was the one notch up faster than basic. Uh, and that was 12 down and one up. And all that's happened in that time is every now and then Comcast bumps it up and I restart my cable modem and we get more speed. So yeah, it's just, you know, they've, they've really kept up with it. You know, remember they're a, they, they're nationwide. So they have to compete with things beyond just a local area. Like your, your, I think your, your issue is that your provider only focuses on that one area of the country. And so they don't have Well, they're to. pretty much the only game in town for cable. Right. I could, I could get 18, uh, you know, I could get DSL or, or uh, I don't even think I can get fiber. Right. Well, that's Despite the thing. Despite there being a big honking fiber something. Across like, the street. Yeah. Uh, no, like I could see it from my window here. There, there's, there's some big company that's running like, I think, uh, big boy uh, fiber. Yeah. I tried calling them a couple of times and like nobody answered. And right. I looked them up and it's like, yeah. So, um. Yeah, I think ours offers like a boost, but uh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real speeds. Yeah, um, it, it, the uh, we can. I can't get fiber here, but I believe Portsmouth can, and Portsmouth is about ten minutes from me. But we're in the same, you know, serve Comcast service area, so I think that's part of it. And plus, Comcast, you know, has a major headquarters in Boston. So we tend to get a lot of stuff first here, which is great. Although we don't have Doxis 3.1 yet. We don't have bandwidth caps yet either, which is interesting. So other, other areas of the company country oh, yeah. are heard, starting to get those. Heard with Comcast. Some, people are, some people are starting to shake their fists, rightfully so. Because last I checked, bandwidth isn't, there's no shortage of it. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm going to point something out and I'm hoping Comcast isn't listening, but if they are, it's okay. Um, because I went and tested all these cable modems, right? You know, I just had to keep putting cable modems on my account and it expires off the old ones. I think you can only have like three on your account at any one time. And, but when you add a new one, it just, you know, it's, it's a uh, first in first out kind of, kind of thing for whatever reason though, even though we don't have bandwidth caps, Comcast has their bandwidth meters running so that you can see how much bandwidth you're using. And I am officially using zero because whatever cable modem Comcast system has decided is the one it should track is not the one that I am using. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, it, there's, there's three or four of them, whatever the number is currently allowed and activated on my account right now. But, um, I, you know, I, I guess, I guess I added enough in a short period of time that it, it kind of confused the system. So right now I'm sort of living outside of Comcast um, guidelines or Comcast meters, I should say. I, I expect that that will change at some point, but, um, you know, I, I share that for, um, just nuggets of information for you to all share. So there you go. <laughs> Fun stuff. I'm glad. Uh, thank you for asking about that, John. It's good. Yeah, uh, so, I can get, yeah. so they got 60, a hundred, 200 and 300 are the other options that are available. I guess they don't. How much more do you get? Is it obvious how much more you would have to pay to get up to a hundred? No. No. Okay. No. no, I mean, dude, 
why would you show the price of something on the same page that shows the features? I mean, come on, dude, tell me about it. It's a cable company. I, I get the same thing with Comcast. Yeah. I, you know, while we're talking about Comcast though, I do want to say that I hear a lot about a lot of people that have had problems with Comcast nationwide. I, I see it, you know, they're treated like the, you know, the devils of the internet, the bane of, of people's existence. I have had Comcast for 11 years, as I mentioned, I have had a stellar experience with them. Their customer support has been top notch for me. And, and I don't believe that I'm getting any special treatment or anything like that. Um, I typically, when I have, when, if I have to call customer support or I have to have to contact customer support, I use their live chat. Now I realize there's times when you can't use their live chat if your internet's down, but the people that are on the live chat are know what they're talking about are able to help and are really, really good. Uh, so I, 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 like I said, I've had a stellar experience with Comcast. I know that, uh, you know, there are others that have not, but I highly recommend using their live chat for anything, not, not just internet stuff, TV stuff, billing, whatever it is, the live chat people are on point and it's really, really good. So I just, just wanted to, I, maybe using live chat is the trick. Um, that's typically how I talk to them. I will say that when I've had to call on the phone, like for TiVo related stuff or whatever it is, the main customer service is awful. Uh, but now I, I, I have the, I don't know if it's secret, but I don't think it is because they gave it to me, but I have the special number to call just for TiVo stuff. And once you get somebody that knows what they're talking about, you're fine. And I think that's part of the benefit of live chat too, with Comcast is they, they're able to get you to who they need to get you to um, without driving you crazy with, you know, phone trees. So, Anyway, just wanted to point that out. While we're on the subject, another John listener has a question about Wi-Fi. He says, my current home Wi-Fi setup is as follows. I have Comcast Internet, but no phone or TV, an airport time capsule main base station, an airport extreme router connected by Ethernet to the main base station, but acts as an extender. We'll talk about that in a minute. An Apple TV fourth gen also connected via Ethernet. Many Internet of Things things, hue bulbs, an August lock, Kuna lights, iDevices objects, a Nest thermostat, and a Nest Protect. I have essentially three networks going, a 2.4 gigahertz network, a 5 gigahertz network, and a guest network called NetGuest. All of my IoT things are linked to the NetGuest, so it's not really used specifically as a guest network. It's just compartmentalized. We have a variety of computers, iPads, and phones around the house as well. About two months ago, I upgraded my Comcast service to 150. Now you're at 200. Uh, indeed, when I subsequently performed speed tests using the online uh, test as well as the iOS app Net Analyzer, Wi-Fi speeds were in excess of 150 uh, on all three networks. About three weeks ago, I noticed that when my iPad was connected to the 2.4 network, it seemed a little sluggish. Indeed, when I analyzed it, the download speeds barely reached 50 megabits. But when I connected to the Net5 or NetGuest networks, the download speeds were back at the 150 plus speeds. I confirmed this with both, both web-based and, and uh, app-based tests. I've tried resetting my base station network with no luck. Any suggestions? Yeah, uh, that actually sounds about right to me, John. In general, 2.4 isn't going to hit all the crazy maximums that we define, right? For a 2.4 gigahertz network, which is a three by three colon three MIMO, which is, I believe what Apple is using on your version of the time capsule and airport extreme. 
that gives a theoretical maximum of 450 megabits per second. It's 150 per stream. And that device supports three 2.4 gigahertz streams simultaneously. But that's 450 megabits at 40 megahertz channel bandwidth. And Apple's devices don't support that. And nor should they. 2.4 gigahertz networks should only be using 20 megahertz channel bandwidth. Uh, and that's what Apple does. You can't change it. On some third-party routers, you can't. Um, so now we're at half that, 216.7 megabits per second. It's actually a little bit less than half due to some overhead. 2.4 gigahertz networks usually perform in the real world at a maximum of about half of the supported bandwidth, although that's not always the case. So now we're down to 108.35. That's the routine maximum you'll get on a 3x3 colon 3 MIMO, 2.4 gigahertz, 20 megahertz network. Too many numbers? Yes. Uh, you might get a little faster at times, but the conditions have to be stellar. So if you were getting better than that, it's likely that the conditions have changed or a firmware update changed something. Your iPad, depending on what model it is, your iPad, though, might only support two by two MIMO, meaning two streams at a time. So it's not even going to use the maximum of your, your router, uh, depending on the model. And then, of course, that cuts the bandwidth down. Generally speaking, um, with Apple devices in particular, I find it best to name both my 2.4 and 5 gigahertz networks the same and let the right let the device decide which network is best. But sometimes the device will get it wrong. Uh, but my guess is that uh, you're just seeing the difference between speed capabilities of 2.4 and 5 gigahertz networks. So I, I think that's normal. Any thoughts on this, John? Um, I'm wondering if it eventually would have switched over to the, if, if to the faster, uh, speed. I mean, most Apple devices do that. No, that's not how Apple no. device. No, Apple devices will pick Apple devices. Use that priority list. Uh, as long as security is the same, um, it will, it will go by your priority list that you can't reorganize on your iOS devices, but you can on your Mac, if you're syncing with iCloud, uh, so whatever's at the top of that list is what it's going to choose if it sees it. And then the second on the list, you know, it fall, if it can't see the first one. So, yeah, it's not. Oh, if you're separating them. Okay. If you're separating them. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Which he has, right. He's, he's which he has. Them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, you're right. Otherwise it'll pick the this. right one. Yes. You know, I wish there was a tool, but you know, I use um, something called Dabuki tools. Yeah. Dabuki tools. And that's cool because that actually shows. So when I roam around the house um, with sense of purpose, not just aimlessly, right? <laughs> sure. But um, but I'll notice that it'll sometimes show. Hey, I'm going. Uh, typically, when I get closer to to my uh, AC base, it'll be like, Hey, I'm switching to five gigs. How's that? And I'm like, Cool. Oh, right. I'm going to make a wider channel. Sure. No, it's fun to watch that. I wish there was a similar thing to show you exactly what's happening on the uh, on the iOS side. Right, right. But you're right. In this case, it wouldn't apply because it's going to lock on to one or the other. It's going to lock on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would, in your case, I would, um, in listener John's case, I, I would name them the same unless you have reason not to. And then I've actually been experimenting with this. So um, I've got all my networks named the same. And then on a couple of my routers here, I've added an S a hidden SSID so that I can always connect devices to five gigahertz or 2.4 just to do some experimenting because, you know, we got to be able to talk about this stuff. And so I have all my iOS devices now locked on to my five gigahertz network 
by name. And it's actually worked out quite well, but I have good uh, coverage of five gigahertz here. The issue would be if you have only one router or one access point, I should say, and you're kind of at the edge of where that might be, you need to do your speed testing and see, you know, what's it like if I'm just connected to the five gigahertz and I'm as far away as I'll ever be, but yet still seeing the five gigahertz connection. Cause remember five doesn't go as far as 2.4. It'll be faster because you're doing on many of these devices, you're doing 802.11 AC. So you've just got, you know, massively wide bandwidth, that whole qualm thing that we talked about before the QAM. That's what AC is really taking advantage of is just higher density on those connections. And so you just need to do a speed test and find out, like even when you have a crummy five gigahertz connection, if you're using AC, what does that net you? And if the answer is way faster than the 2.4, that seems stronger. Well then stick with the five as long as, as long as it holds the connection. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm finding that if you've got good coverage, splitting your network names can actually, can actually be okay. I don't know if it's, again, I don't know that it's mandatory, um, but it, it can be okay. So, and then we get to Andrew's question, John, unless there's more here on John's. Uh, the other thing I noticed, uh, flipping through, uh, which I didn't know this, but I know it now and I'm going to share it with you, but, um, actually it appears that some of the iPads, specifically the mini, uh, are still only N. Uh, no, the no. latest is AC, but some of the older iPad minis mm-hmm. that aren't too, too old. Yeah. Look to, yeah. The iPad, iPad mini three and prior, uh, have n that's right yeah so i don't know if that's the specific ipad in question that could also explain why you're not getting as good uh well but i mean 2.4 would would be n is as good as it's going to get there um but but on five gigahertz yeah and that's what you need to kind of look at is it's a very good point if if some of your devices remembering that all of your apple devices are going to share the same priority list um you kind of have to think a little bit about about that what you could do again, if your router supports it, is set up an AC-only network where your router will not let anything other than 802.11 AC clients connect to 5 gigahertz and then prioritize that and then your 2.4 below that. And that way, you know, if you've got these, these like, like John just pointed out, you know, a 5 gigahertz device on N probably is better off at further range doing 2.4. But... A five gigahertz device on 802.11 AC is probably better at long range than doing 2.4. So you can set it so that you're, you know, you can, if you can set it so that your router will only allow devices to connect to five gigahertz at AC, that might actually be a good way to do it. And I think you could even do that on Apple's routers, right? You can, you can limit what the five gigahertz connection is. And that, that actually would be the more I think about it to some Yes, that would probably be a smart thing to do because five gigahertz 802.11 N uh, it can be wonky, uh, you know, because just because it's you're you're using this kind of older signaling protocol over something where your connection quality is generally not going to be great because because five gigahertz doesn't blast through walls all that well. Huh. That's interesting. Somebody needs to, we need yeah. to try that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of the thing. I've actually, uh, on my non-Apple router, I've actually excluded, uh, well, I think I turned off 802.11b because nobody should be using that. Sure. So that's just like 
dark ages of Wi-Fi. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, but you might wind up with some older device, like if you've got an old printer or something. Oh, I, I, I won't permit it. Nope. That's nope. right. Nope. nope. No more printing. Nope. The only other thing I want to consider is I, I was thinking the other day, so my, my MacBook Pro has only 802.11N. Mm-hmm. There actually is a company that makes a replacement module that'll oh, do AC. an internal module. Yeah, I mean, it's a standard, you know, I think it's a Broadcom chip. Sure. You know, but, yeah, but not an external thing. You just put it inside. I already have an external thing, um, the bear extender. I have that. And that's fine. That's USB 3. And, you know, that, that, that if there's a situation where I want to get slightly higher speeds, yeah, then I plug that in. But it'd be nice to replace the internal board just, yeah. just for fun. Because I was thinking, is, you know, where are all my devices? I'm just, just going through them. I'm all like, you know what? My portable isn't AC, although my mini is, but my mini is wired. Right. So I hardly ever use the, right. the, the wireless right. on it. Right. All right. I want to get to Andrew's question here because it's, yeah. it's very much related. Uh, he says, this is one thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies about the Apple Watch. I love it otherwise. I run a dual wireless network, 2.4 and 5 gigahertz with different SSIDs for the 2 and 5 networks. Why? Because microwaves and cordless phones interfere with 2.4 and stuff up the streaming of my music and video. Okay, fair point. So he doesn't want his devices to connect uh, to 2.4 if they don't have to. So all of my iOS and macOS devices only run on my 5 gigahertz network, so I get an unbroken stream. I have edited out the 2.4 gigahertz connection on all devices, so it's not on his list. It's not being shared with iCloud and not being shared with his watch. He says, that's great. But my Apple watch only runs on 2.4 gigahertz. So because none of my iOS devices connect to 2.4, my watch does not know about the 2.4 gigahertz network and therefore doesn't try to connect to it. It only uses Bluetooth rather than Wi-Fi to communicate with my phone. If the watch is out of Bluetooth range, it doesn't interact with the phone at all because there's no Wi-Fi connection. If both were on 2.4, there would be no problem as the watch would communicate over Wi-Fi. So I put the phone on wireless 2.4 or he says, maybe that would be the advice you give. But then the connection is shared with all my other Apple devices automatically and they may kick onto 2.4 without my knowledge. I looked at the Series 2 Apple Watch hoping it would run 5 gigahertz and it won't. And there's that power requirements, I believe, is the reason there. Uh, any suggestions apart from a fish shake at Apple? Yeah. Um, so the, my first question, and you may have already tried this, but have you tried running the same SSID for both? I mean, I, I, it sounds like you've very intentionally tested this and found that when you are running the same SSID for both things, wind up choosing 2.4 and then getting this interference. But that would be worth testing because Apple devices are usually pretty good at selecting the best network for them. Um, but with different SSID names, you should be use, should be able to use the priority list, as we mentioned, to get what you want. Go on your iCloud-connected Mac into System Preferences, Network, Wi-Fi, Advanced, and then also Wi-Fi, and rearrange your preferred network so that your 5 gigahertz network is up at the top and your 2.4 gigahertz network is below that. Based on what we just talked about, where Apple chooses the first network if it can see it it should do exactly what you want because your watch won't be able to see the five gigahertz network it'll fall back to the 2.4 your phone what what happened when you added the 2.4 gigahertz network to your phone 
it put it higher up in the priority list than the other networks it knew about. And that I believe was your problem. So if you do it on your Mac first and set the priority list there and then let that propagate down, I think you're going to get what you want. I think, I hope, but I think you will. Thoughts on this, John, before we move on, I think we've I got hope. time for a couple more. Okay. You would hope. Yeah. That is interesting though. I would think the reason they only have 2.4 gig radios in there is just because <laughs> it's just because, yeah, well, no, I think there's, I think Bluetooth is also on 2.4. Right. Gig. So we can share Last the antenna. Check. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's just efficiency. I mean, they could put a five gig radio in there if they wanted to, but I think it would use, I think it would use more battery power. I think I seem to remember power requirements for five being higher. That sounds reasonable. Sweet. All right. We've got a couple of tips to go through here. So let's, let's get those and we'll start with Paul's because we've been talking about Wi-Fi. We might as well get there. He says uh, on the back of your recent discussion about hidden Wi-Fi networks, one thing your listeners might like to know is that if they use an Amazon Alexa device, either the Echo or Dot, Amazon will by default store your Wi-Fi network password on their servers. This info is buried in the Alexa settings. In the Alexa app, go to settings, Alexa devices, name Echo Dot, Wi-Fi network save to Amazon. Your password won't be stored on Amazon servers if it's an enterprise network password, uh, a hidden network, or an open network not secured with a password because there's no password to store. The app says Wi-Fi passwords are stored. So, quote, we can configure your compatible devices so that you won't need to re-enter your Wi-Fi passwords on each device. And, quote, nice of Amazon to ask. Hmm? I thought this was a little sneaky myself and possibly a good reason to hide your SSID after all. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. I will say I just set up uh, a, a, one of the new Gen 2 uh, Amazon Echo Dots. The thing's awesome, by the way. It's like what you would want Siri to actually be in your house. Um, we've got it in the kitchen right now and it's stellar. Uh, we can get all kinds of information. I can have it turn on my TV. It's outstanding. Uh, but it did ask, or it did tell me that it was going to store my, um, my passwords in, uh, in Amazon's cloud, my Wi-Fi password. So, hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, 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 I was aware of this before I got Paul's email, but that may be an update that they did, you know, between when Paul set his up and when I set mine up. So, yeah, but a hidden think, network wouldn't do it. So, and I think I got a mini tip. I think Allison said something about this. Our friend Allison at the Nocilla cast, um, her device was telling her the weather in a town that she didn't live in. And as it turns out, I think you have to manually set this because I think what it does is it tries to geolocate your IP address. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily oh, interesting. work out to be the location you're in. Like, for example, um, Optimum operates uh, in Connecticut and also uh, uh, Long Island. Sure. So sometimes when I go to certain sites, they'll be like, hey, welcome from Long Island. And I'm like, no, mm, no. Huh. <laughs> sometimes my IP comes out to be one that. Sure as far as they know is in long Island, but right. It's not. Right. It's not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you mean you? Well, I, I don't think know if you had that asked problem. Me. No, I think it asked me what my address was when I went oh, okay. through the setup. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, cause I remember giving it like my address 
uh, or it asking because it, you know, it's linked to my Amazon account. So Amazon has a lot of information about me. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, but I think, yeah, I think I was able to either pick or tell it my, my actual address and then it, it works. I've, I've had a lot of fun with, with the echo. It, the far field voice is really amazing. It's what's cool is it's got a, um, it's got a ring around the top that lights up when you talk to it. Uh, but and it lights up like blue, but then you get a dark blue dot on the side of the, uh, or on the, on the edge of the ring kind of facing where your voice has come from. So the thing is it obviously really able to tell what, you know, where you are and what direction you're coming from on this thing. And uh, it's, it's really it, the, that whole far field voice thing that they've got going on is really interesting. It knows what direction you're coming from and, really narrows it down. It's that whole, you know, kind of that concept of beam forming that, that Wi-Fi does they're doing with, uh, you know, audio waves. I mean, it responds right away. I mean, all I have to say is, you know, Alexa, and I know a lot of you now have devices that are blue and responding in weird ways because it thinks that I'm talking to it, but I'm not Alexa. Thank you. And then that'll, that'll shut it up. So there you go. Uh, Scott has uh, he's got a little audio comment from last show. So we'll, we'll uh, from our final discussion on last show. And then we've got one more tip uh, at least to go through here. Hey, Sean and Dave, this is Scott in DC. How's this for timely? I'm all, almost caught up and I'm listening to Mackie Gab number 628. Let me bring your discussion about denial of service attacks down to a basic level. I don't have to replay to request the web page for you. I could basically do the, the electronic equivalent of knocking on your door. When TCP makes a request saying, hi, I'm going to come in and talk to you, it basically sends a, a knock, basically what we call a SYN packet, synchronous. That's what S-Y-N stands for, synchronous, to, to start a conversation. All I have to do is flood you with a bunch of those SYN packets. It's called a SYN flood. You can do a number of other things. What the IoT things did was leverage a couple of bugs within this this uh, this particular device that that's been going around um, to to basically go out and say okay I need for you to call me at this address to give you your status okay so what's the address well here's the URL what's the URL Basically, at this point, you're going to unleash all that all that data and send it out to Dyn and, and attack Dyn. Why were they able to attack Dyn? Because the DNS query is not a TCP message; it's a UDP message. UDP is the is the datagram protocol. It's basically saying, "I'm going to throw a packet out there, and it's going to get there. It may get there. I'm going to wait for 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 answer back." While TCP simulates a connection, UDP doesn't. And because the DNS queries are so small and so short, basically what the concept was is you throw the packet out there, you wait a certain amount of time, you get an answer back, and, and you, go, you go from there. Well, what, what these guys did instead was not only tell the, the particular IoT devices, and some of them were routers too. There are a number of routers that were in their home routers that, that have this bug is say, okay, I need you to go to this particular address. Here's the URL. Oh, well, as any good computer does, where's the URL? 
uh, has to call the DNS service, domain name service, to say, okay, translate this to an IP address. Translate to an IP address means pack up the query in a uh, in, in a in a packet, send it to UDP port 53 at the service. No sync flood, no connection, no nothing. Just throw the packet. Well, guess what? You get about a thousand of these to throw the packet. You throw the packet. You form it just right. And what you do is you tell it to return the, the answer to another one. Well, when the other the other device gets it, it doesn't know what to do. And that's how it. And that's how the flood happened. So very. Thank you, Scott, for that. It's good stuff. Uh, very, very interesting. So, thoughts on that, John? Before we uh, before we move on to our final tip, um, I think the router should all be reprogrammed. To well, stop this sort of thing, dude. You you wrote something. I did. It, yeah, it, this is the most obvious thing, right? We we are going to have these devices in our homes that um, that are are compromisable, and here's the deal. And I haven't written this up yet, but I will. HomeKit is not the answer. HomeKit's awesome when it comes to its own security. I mean, it's like so awesome that it's probably too much. Okay. It, 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 there are devices that are their CPUs can't handle HomeKit. Uh, because, awesome. it, yeah, it, it's like totally bleeding edge security. It's like uh, 3072 bit keys all exchanged over this elliptical curve thing. So it's constantly changing. And it like key exchange with this. There's some devices that they, when they did initial tests took 40 seconds just to get to the point where they were ready to authenticate with each other. It, it, this is like hyper security. That's not a bad thing, by the way, that that's, that's speaking volumes about how secure HomeKit is. And frankly, how almost, I, I'm not going to say anything is not unhackable, but if anything's unhackable, it's HomeKit. Okay. Very, very secure, but that's it. You can't hack into the HomeKit stream, but there is nothing in the HomeKit spec. And I have talked with hardware vendors about this. There is nothing in the HomeKit spec that says that they cannot allow other access methods. Okay. And, and this is proven, right? You can have HomeKit devices, HomeKit compatible devices that also have their own iOS app to talk directly to them or whatever. But even if HomeKit were the only protocol used on an IP-based device, it could still have this exact same SSH hole that was used to exploit the, the other devices in the attack recently. I have confirmed this with multiple IoT vendors. Uh, and so, it, you know, this is a thing. It's just um, HomeKit's not the, uh, the magic answer. Uh, so we need, we need to have a an environment where a compromised device can't keep doing all of these things and your router in your home is perfectly suited to do this because it knows what type of device it is based on the mac address or at least it knows the vendor and if it sees a device sending lots and lots of dns queries to something that is not its normal dns server it can the corporate firewalls already do this stuff, right? They they're constantly looking for anomalies. The routers that we have in our homes have really fast processors on them because we need them to do QoS. Well, what do you think QoS is doing? It's looking at every packet and deciding what to do with it and how to prioritize it. No reason we couldn't add an algorithm to all those home routers that are already doing QoS or should be Apple. And, uh, 
and and have it at least flag this traffic, if not slow it down. And you could even whitelist stuff or blacklist stuff, right? If if Dyn's being attacked, push out an update to routers that says, "All right, yep, stop this." I don't know. It it that, that to me that's the that's the easiest, and it's not easy. Somebody needs to write the software, but the devices already exist in many of our homes to limit this down. You need to put a speed bump in the way for people. Uh, and, and I think the router is the way to do it. Thank you for reminding me of that, John. It's good stuff. I don't know. Any other thoughts? More than you could possibly imagine, but nothing about this. All right. Well, I think, I think that's going to be enough because we're already there. You know, it's just how it's it like goes. we just started. I know it's been a, uh, it's been a fun one. Good stuff. If you want to contact us, if you have anything to say, comments, questions, cool stuff found, tips, whatever it might be, email us, feedback at MacGeekab.com. I'm not sure if I heard you right. I thought you said feedback at MacGeekab.com. I did. I said feedback at MacGeekab.com, unless you're a premium subscriber. Uh, And then you get to email us at premium at MacGeekab.com, where we give you uh, first priority when we're going through all our notes and such. Uh, you can also call us. Any of you can call us at 224-888-GEEK. And John Geek is? 4335. Three, and and I, we haven't mentioned it for a while, but there's this thing that's still out there called Twitter. I'm John F. Ron. He's Dave Hamilton. The podcast is Mac Geek App. Publication is Mac Observer. All on Twitter. I do want to thank our premium members, John. And yeah, we'd love to see you on Twitter. Twitter is fun. Uh, we put up some fun little surveys there to keep uh, keep everything going. Um, I want to thank our premium members that, that wrote in or that we talked about in this episode. That's Chuck early on. First question about Sierra. John asked about the Touch ID keyboard. John, different John, asked about managing Wi-Fi speeds. Andrew asked about his watch. And uh, Paul alerted us to Amazon's storing of our Wi-Fi passwords. Thank you so much for all of you and everyone who's a premium subscriber for supporting the show and really really helping us continue to do what we do it means a ton if you want to learn about premium visit us at macgeekab.com you can learn all about it right there i also want to thank cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you the podcast marketplace includes our great sponsors of course we mentioned gazelle in this episode at gazelle.com the folks at Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG, where you can get a coupon on Power Photos. Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. Otherworld Computing at macsales.com. Barebones Software at barebones.com. Casper, casper.com slash MGG. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for contributing thank you for all that you do we love that we are able to continue to do this and don't get caught made up